0: Blog Talk
1: Radio Welcome to Thursday night at the Speakeasy Cafe. We would like to invite you to take the stage for The Sound of Ink, Open Mic Poetry Night. Now, let's get started. I want your ink in our ears. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Speakeasy Cafe Open Mic Poetry Show, The Sound of Ink. I'm very excited to be here tonight. Um, I want to let you know that we are going to be... uh, Some of you may know that I had surgery yesterday on my hand and I thought I was going to be all tough tonight and just not take my pain pills and do the show and that's not going to happen. I'm not that tough. So, we are going to be playing a pre-recorded uh poetry workshop tonight by Miss Cassandra Tribe and if you've not heard this one, you guys really need to listen to this tonight. It is incredible. She is absolutely amazing. Uh if those of you who don't know her, you can Google her. She's got a lot of stuff on YouTube. Um, she's going to be presenting a—it's um, a short and intense version of her six-week workshop that she does called "Writing Yourself into Life," and it's just absolutely phenomenal. I, when I first when I did this with her, um, I think I—I I honestly believe it absolutely changed me as a writer forever. It's very powerful, very intense, and I know you'll take a lot away from it. So I'm really happy to be presenting that to you tonight. I'm really sad that I'm not going to be here with you. Um, I was looking forward to hosting. Stan was going to host with me tonight, um, but I just really don't think I can do this, guys. So I apologize. I feel really bad, but I am really happy that you get to hear this workshop. So we won't be taking any live callers. We will resume doing that next week. I cannot wait to hear what you've written. Um, I did want to come on live at the beginning of the show and explain all that to you, and to give you your writing prompts, your songs for this month, or excuse me, this week. Um, So every week in the month of May, I have been giving you three song titles as your writing prompts. And you can use these as uh, poem titles. You can use them as lines in your poems you can use them as just a general concept for your poem, okay? Or if you want to get really cool and super awesome and get great kudo points, you can use all three lines, all three song titles and the lines um, of your poem or whatever. Anyway, so the song titles I'm going to give you for this week is, one, Who's Going to Ride Ride Wild Horses? That's a U2 song, Who's Going to Ride Wild Horses? The next one is Take the Power Back, and that's Rage Against the Machine, Take the Power Back, and Prisoner of Society, and that's from The Living End. So we've got Who's Going to Ride Wild Horses, Take the Power Back, and Prisoner of, so- of Society. Okay, so I am going to, without further ado, start the workshop with Cassandra Tybe. You'll want, definitely want to have a notepad with you. Okay, I do have the chat room open, so you can visit in the chat room if you would like during this workshop and and talk about it. And I do have the phone lines open so that you can listen to the show um, on the phone lines if you want to do that already. Or you can click on the link and it will take you to the show uh, so you can listen to it online, whichever you prefer. So this is Miss Cassandra Tribe, pre-recorded show with the Inkwell. Here we go. Thank you, everybody. Love, Hope, Radio Welcome to the Inkwell Brought to you by the Speakeasy Café Open Mic Poetry Show The Inkwell is a how-to show Designed for writers To help them advance in their writing careers So you've written something Now what? That's what we're here to tell you Now On to the show. Welcome everybody to the Inkwell. It's an absolute thrill to be here tonight. You guys are in for an incredibly, incredibly amazing show. Tonight we are doing a workshop and our special guest is Cassandra Tribe and I am absolutely thrilled that she has agreed to be here. And for those of you who don't know, you might want to make sure you send her a special thank you because her workshops are normally hundreds of dollars. But in celebration of National Poetry Month, she has agreed to come on here and provide this workshop free of charge to help you spread your poetic wings and try new things, be inspired, learn, invest in your art. So we're real thankful for her to be here and and share this with us. Uh, the workshop can give you an overview of what we're going to do today. Um, the workshop is designed to combine methods used to take your writing to the next level along with self-awareness techniques that will not only benefit uh, the development of your writing, but teach you to use the act of writing to, cre- to create and sustain changes in all areas of your life. Um, the, this is a short version, and it will focus on the exercise called The Room which can be used with any style of writing, from poetry to prose to memoir to journal writing. And um, this is, like I said, this is a free version of Cassandra's workshop, so make sure that you really show her some love and appreciation for this. And also, uh, the links associated with this exercise will be made available during and, uh, and after the show as well. So, without further ado, let me go ahead and bring on Cassandra get this to unmute. I don't want to have to sing hold music with my um uh, to unmute her. Okay, there we go. Cassandra. Yes my aunt, Oh god. <laughs> I thought I was gonna to have to start singing and there would have gone anyone's inspiration.
2: <laughs> I, I was debating whether I should just like hold my breath and see if he'd actually sing.
1: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh girl, you have not heard me sing. It would not have been pretty at all. <laughs> you know what, sweetheart, I want to tell mm-hmm. you a very personal thank you. I know, especially after talking to you the last couple of days, I know how crazy your uh, your schedule is. I mean, you even had to hire an assistant. That's just insane. I hope to be – well, actually, I'm not busy now. I'm just too broke for an assistant, but um, – I know how precious your time is and how many directions you're being pulled and all the things that you're doing. So the fact that you're taking two hours out of your, your time to sit and do this for the benefit of the poets and for poetry and the craft um, says a lot about who you are as a person and your love for poets and poetry. And it's a very selfless act and a very giving act, and I just want you to know, on behalf of myself being able to present you to everybody, which I am thrilled to do, but behalf on behalf of everyone that's going to be listening today and benefiting from the information that you're going to share, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It is um, definitely a gift that you're doing this, and so we thank you for that.
2: Well, you're, you're quite welcome, and in return I want to say that one of the reasons I'm so willing to do this is I don't think people appreciate how much I get out of, you know, the way we talk online, you know, through the blog and stuff like that. I don't think a lot of people listening really think that I get a lot out of talking to them or seeing their poetry, and I really, really do. And I really deeply appreciate everything that, that you do. So for me, it's it's an honor to have been asked to do this.
1: Oh, see, so now we're going to have a group hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Derby, <everybody>, cuddle in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Randall, don't before make... we go ahead, yeah. No, I don't, don't make me giggle. Oh no, I love it when you giggle. You're so cute. Okay. <laughs> before we get started, I would like to. I mean, I I have your bio in front of me, and I don't even know if I can pronounce all the words in it. <laughs> it it is absolutely impressive, and you know it's really funny when we first started doing the Speakeasy Cafe, which is our sister show. It's a poetry open mic, calling poetry open mic show on every Thursday. Um, when you first started calling in and reading i didn't know who you were and so i'm just thinking gosh this lady's amazing she really, really you know she's going to have to do something with her poetry someday and then i <laughs> you know then i kind of got an idea of some of the things you're doing then i found out one of the projects you're working you were working on which i'm sure you'll get into here in a little bit and then i saw your bio and it's like holy moly girl <laughs> you have done some amazing things
2: yeah it's been a wild ride but i've but I have also been doing it for a long time.
1: would you uh, um before we get started, would you kind of share because I could read this off, but it it's so long and enormous that it would be like a laundry list. So would you mind sharing some of the highlights of some of the things that you've you've been real exciting for you? Would you share those with us?
2: um yeah, I'll try and do it without like slipping into that that rote monotone voice. Um, I've actually I've been writing for a very long time. Um, I'm published in four different languages. I have about eight books out. Only two of them are in English. Um, I have three CDs out. The last one, Angel, received the 2009 Grindy Award from Apple iTunes. Um, I have performed all around the world, and only recently started performing in the U.S., which is why you didn't really know who I was. Um, Answer.com, of all things, has me listed as one of the top 100 performance poets of the century, which makes me feel old. And what makes me <laughs> feel even, even older is if you go to a lot of the online encyclopedias, they have me included as the, part of the definition of the spoken word, which I think is a hoot. Um, I have a bunch of awards. Um I'm also, on top of being a. I'm a performance poet, I'm a dramatic poet. I'm also on the National List of Living Epic and Dramatic Poets for the U.S. Um, I teach. One of the last places I taught was with the U.S. Poets in Mexico. I was on the faculty with Ann Waldman, Mark Doty, Pedro Serrano. I am um, also, if you're familiar with me through my blog... I'm a social theorist, blogger and human rights activist and I've published a great deal of work um, under doing that and what I'm most excited about now which, you know, all all of that is well and good but for me, where I am, what makes me excited is my poetry and, you know, my, my beliefs in human rights and all of that are finally starting to really merge and come together and speak in one voice and that to me is just the best achievement I've had in my life so far.
1: That's incredible. And I want to ask you this because, and I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is going to be, but there's a lot of poets who are, just starting out, some who've been writing for a while, and are just, you know, just beginning to share their poetry, and some who've been at it. And actually, that's the reason that this show was conceived was to help poets find ways to reach whatever their personal goals are, and give them the information that they need so that maybe they don't have to trip and fall as many times as those who've gone before them. Um, and just a, a real, a wonderful way to share information with back and forth between everybody, really. Um, but what is the difference between? someone who's just starting out you know okay i'm going to use myself as an example i've been published a couple places i just was accepted for my first residency which i'm real thrilled about so i'm you know i'm just a baby compared to what you've done so what what is the difference what is it or or someone who's just now reading for the very very first time and has never shared their poetry at all what's the difference between where we're at and where you are
2: um i think the The best, the best way to start answering that question is to look at what we have in common, which is fear. Um, but we have, a, like, someone who's just starting out, and someone like me, we have two very different fears. I think um, someone who's just starting out, the what they're, what they're working with, what they're writing, is still very revelatory. I mean, they're revealing themselves still, and it's a very um, of unstable position because you really don't know, you're not quite sure if you want to take something, like, out of the journal or, you know, or post it or get feedback or, you know, everything kind of feels like it has the potential for that that personal rejection. You know, it's not just that they're saying that they don't like what, what you've written. It kind of feels like they don't like you. And when you get to, like, the stuff that I'm involved in, my fear... It kind of has to do with exploration. I have a fear that, you know, at some point, you know, my craft's going to fail me. I'll reach my limitations. I'll have an idea in my head, you know, in my head and my heart, and my hands won't be able to do it. So um, that I really see as the main difference. I think part of the process of getting from one fear to the other fear is just Becoming comfortable in taking risks and realizing that you know this may be this may be your your baby that you're putting out there, but um, the the baby lives within you no matter where it goes and what people say about it and um, once you once you get further along, you start to stop viewing what you write as your baby and you start to see them like seeds and some seeds take and some seeds don't and you know, and then you get into where I am with my fear that you know, well, well what if, what if there's a drought and none of the seeds grow? <laughs> you know, but that's that's really, I mean, because I I've done a fair amount of work with some some new and starting out poets, and and a lot of what I see is that their type of fear is is that kind of that it's, it feels like a personal rejection, and it's not. I mean, once it's on a piece of paper, you need to be able to kind of Separate it out so that you can, you can hear feedback and and learn more about the craft so that you can express, reveal more of yourself in a way that communicates itself better. Um,
1: exactly. I always mm-hmm. say take every bit of criticism or every bit of negative and learn from it because, you know, it, when we become so wrapped up in our, our own fears, like you were saying, um, then we don't listen anymore. And if mm-hmm. you separate yourself from that and listen and grow and learn, and I've been given advice and some of it I've taken and, you know, some of it I haven't, and it's all a learning process. But the, the, when I first started submitting my poetry, Cassandra, it, uh, the way I looked at it, and this might be beneficial, is I didn't care whether it was accepted or not. I didn't care if I got a million. If, if The only thing I ever received in my entire life was rejection slips it wouldn't have mattered because that meant i was doing what 80% of the poets out there never do and that's right. a chance on themselves and so right. you know if, if, if for nothing but that just to prove to yourself that you have the the guts to, to say this is my words these are my this is my soul here world you know and whether they like it or not to know that you believed in yourself that much and that's what i'm hoping that everyone will uh, they'll reach that point where they just believe in themselves and do it, so that's awesome. Okay, to kind of give everybody an idea of how the the workshop is going to proceed today, I'm going to turn it over to Cassandra here in a moment, and she's going to take over. When the workshop is set up to be archive-friendly, there's going to be some writing prompts, and when those start, Cassandra will ask me to start playing some music. While the music's playing, I've got a couple questions to pick her brain with. Um, It's going to give you a couple minutes to write down some ideas, starters, and such, but there won't be enough time for you to really get a lot of writing done. And so the way we set this up is so you can go back to the archives after the show and turn it on and listen to it again at your convenience. And then when you hear the music start, pause the show and sit down and take your time and do your writing. And then when you're done writing, go ahead and start the show back up again. So, you'll be able to sit down and, and get the full benefit of the show. Um, so, you can take notes and stuff now and write down some ideas when you, they come to you, but don't worry about writing full length epic poems right now. So, um, if you want, I just want to let you know, too, uh, if you'd like to check out Cassandra's page while we are sitting here talking, her website is www.loveandwords.com. So, you can uh, go over and you know, check out her page. I want to make sure that you visit with her. And I think um, I think that's about it. It's my turn to shush and let you take over. <laughs> well, the first thing I want to
2: explain is this workshop that I'm going to do is actually a six-week workshop where um, the class meets two hours a week. So this is going to be a really intense and condensed version of it. Um, that you probably will really have to go back to the archive and listen to it. A lot of what's going to be going on is me talking about uh, processes and then asking you to start writing some notes. So hopefully, even if you only get to write a few things down, by the end of the show, you'll have a framework that you can start building from. Um, The exercise is called the room, and it is a narrative exercise. That means that there is a story that's going to occur. Now, it doesn't matter whether this is the style that you write in, um, this is a style you can't stand, this is a style you don't understand at all. The purpose of my using a narrative exercise is so that we can sort of walk sequentially through building the poem and the elements in the poem and how it relates to you and your history and how you make choices in what you write now i 'm going to give you the, the brief overview of it is that you're going to be just asked to describe a room in very great detail. The room can only have one door and one chair in it. You are then going to describe your hero and your villain and via some kind of conversational confrontation between the two, it must be decided which of them is going to sit in that chair and that conversation or confrontation must be completely believable to your reader. Whatever the reason is it gets decided it must make sense within the reality that you create. Now this room is actually the waiting room to your soul. And when that door opens, whoever is sitting in that chair is going to be speaking directly to your soul. And at the end, what you're going to do is you're going to write something called the conversation," which is going to be what is said and what you say back. Now, while that sounds really, really narrative, there's a lot of room within that. You can even present the entire thing um, through imagery, through metaphor. It doesn't have to be, you know, like a movie script. Um, however it fits with the style that you write. It's not, there isn't a specific style for this. It's just, this is a, a framework workshop just to get you thinking about how you make your choices. Um, as writers and artists, we need to start paying very, very close attention to our surroundings because within them lie stories that go beyond what is said. We're used to walking around, reacting to things very emotionally. We see something, we react to it, we say, that's horrible, I'm going to write a poem about it. And that's all well and good, but if you start looking at all the different objects that surround that reaction, what was in that, that area, you begin to get a sense of a different layer of the story. Going back to what I was saying about the difference between the uh, revelation and exploration, when you begin to understand the dictionary you have set up for yourself in life, you begin to move beyond that merely reacting to a situation to being able to start exploring in your writing the weight and meaning of it in the sense of past, present, and future. Um, It would be like walking down the street and seeing someone in abject poverty begging on the street corner and you have this very visceral emotional reaction. This is a horrible thing, you know, we're in this Western society, we should be able to support everything, you know, it brings up these memories. And that's a wonderful reactionary poem. But if you start to look at the fact that this person was sitting on the steps of a building that was built in the eighteenth century that used to be a state house, that used to be a bank, you're starting to reveal layers of metaphor and meaning that you can then take into your very emotionally driven piece and give it the weight of reality, make it stay. Um, it's It's sort of the difference. The difference is... Between writing a poem that rails against, like, the injustice of poverty through the use of words, as if, you know, you could take the words, fill in some more, and it would be like a, a newspaper article, and creating something that literally poisons the listener's ability to take their own life for granted, because they have now lived and breathed the experience of poverty through your words. So back to the concept, the first stage of this exercise Is in creating this room Now rooms are places of shelter We all have memories of rooms We have memories of rooms that are good We have memories of rooms that are bad If you were to choose to think of a room That literally would be like the lobby for your soul That kind of an important room What type of room would it be? Would it be large? Would it be small? Would it have a tall ceiling, wood floors? Think of all of those things because what that room becomes is it becomes a container for for your life. So you're going to want to reflect in that room what you are about. But you also have to remember that it being a room, it's a very internal thing. This is not something that you show everyone. It's something that people get invited into. But it's also not exactly everything about you because it is a waiting room. The chair that was mentioned in the exercise, the one chair, there's very different specific meanings to chairs um, whether it's a hard back chair soft back chair barca lounger whatever uh chairs can either be welcoming they can they can hold people they can almost uh, make people uncomfortable make them not want to stay there um, what type of chair are you going to put in this room for people are you going to be welcoming them are you going to want them to be comfortable to stay do you want them to feel like they're waiting outside the principal's office um, is that there's a sense of a a purpose to the chair, and of course the windows that are in the room are the cliche of the you know the window to the soul. But it's not just the window to the soul. It's how you look out and how you incorporate what is the light from the world into yourself. How do you let that in? Do you have curtains on it to block it out? Do you have a special kind of gauzy material that changes the color? so that what you're seeing is something that you have put a veil over. We start to associate people and memories with objects at a very, very early age. And as we grow older, we have a tendency to gather to ourselves objects that telegraph to other people, and to ourselves are our intentions and purpose. Um, one of the things I'm going to ask you to do, and this is an, uh, an official pause, but just as I'm talking, just quickly make a list of five objects in your home that are very important to you. When we write and we use objects and symbols in writing... There are two different kinds. One is the very personal, and one is the universal. Personal objects, personal symbols, personal metaphors are things that we understand as the writer, as the the author, the creator. It means something very specific to us. The universal phrases are the phrases that are understood by 95% of the people. Um, They're almost a cliché but not quite. When you're writing one of the most important, there's a saying that the greatest, what is it? Um, The greatest integrity, tension is the greatest integrity. When, what that means, they're not talking about conflict, but they're talking about the give and take that exists in all objects and all people. Everything you do gives and takes from you. When you're writing and you start to work with these metaphors and these symbols and these objects, like you're writing about your chair, you're writing about what's over your window, you can create tension that's going to draw the reader in and make them very... Maybe not excited, but very involved in what you're writing by switching between a very personal metaphor or symbol and a very universal one. So people will get the impression that they are starting to understand you, but yet you give them enough that they can understand you as you're going. We use our objects as markers and holders for our memories. Um, We use them also to remind ourselves of our identity, you know, our clothing, tattoos, jewelry. Just um, another quick thing to do would be to make a a quick, you know, three item list of three objects that you wear, including tattoos, that are part of your identity. And objects also can hold a cultural meaning. Um, and a meaning that's found in the collective unconscious, kind of like the chair. The chair has a cultural meaning. Um, It is the sign of someone resting. If you write in a poem that someone has sat in a chair or someone's sitting in a chair, or I just wrote one where it says that he will never get out of the chair again, people understand that that's kind of exhaustion. You can start looking for these cultural and historical meanings to these symbols. And sometimes people will have forgotten exactly what they mean, but they will know it intuitively. When you start to work with attention of objects, like in this room that you're creating, as you place the different items around. I mean you you get I mean you're limited to the one room, the one door, the one chair, but you need to put things on the walls. You need to, if you have an object there, a glass vase that's going to catch the light from the window, is it down where someone can reach it? Is up high above where it's obviously sacred to you? The placement of your objects will tell people what they mean. And the same is if you're writing something that's not as narrative of this, where you place your different metaphors is going to tell people within your poem what is most important. If you pile up your metaphors, you pile up your, your power phrases, then nothing's going to come through. But if you sort of build that tension, I'm going to give you something easy, now I'm going to hit you hard, and I'm going to give you something easy, and keep them going back and forth, you engage people in a the rhythm. they don't get lulled. Nothing creates a monotony. Um, it would be interesting, as another aside, to make a quick list of three people in your life and three the three objects you associate with each one. Generally, when we think of someone... It's kind of like you walk down the street and you might see something of a particular color and it's going to remind you of someone. That's what you're looking for. When you have these little lists of objects that are tied to memories or people, go back and look through them to see which ones are similar to each other. And you'll start to detect a pattern in your life of what you draw around you. There is a difficulty in using um, objects that have the triple meaning. When, I mean, a lot of times you'll hear people say, Oh, don't write that, that's a cliche. Well, it's not necessarily a cliche, it just may have a triple meaning. It may mean something to you personally, it might mean something else to everyone else, and then it might have that underlying cultural meaning. I taught um, a class in Mexico, and I had a fellow who wrote these beautiful little poems, and he couldn't understand why every time he gave them to someone to read, they would go, oh, that's a beautiful little poem, how sad. And he was like, this isn't a sad poem. So I write it, and it's like, that's a, a beautiful poem, but how sad. And we sat down and we broke it down, and what he had been using as his repetitive symbol was a sparrow. And to him, a sparrow was a reminder of a very happy time in, in childhood. What other people were starting to pick up on was the cultural history of the sparrow as being a psychopump, of being a harbinger of the dead. And that's something that in our modern language we don't necessarily talk about. But if you go back through the historical significance of these little birds, it's been there for centuries and it sort of creeps into the collective unconscious. And this is kind of the level of detail you have to pay attention to all of the objects you put in your poems. What are you going if you're especially if you're writing poetry, these are short phrases. Any anytime you put a physical object in a short phrase, you're highlighting it, you're underscoring it. It's going to stand out and you have to be very, very certain that A, you know what it means and B, it is what you need it to mean. Um The last thing I want to talk about objects as far as what you can place in this room is an awareness of the difference between objects of fear and objects of life. Um, We use, as I said before, objects as a marker or holder for our memories. And a lot of the time we are unaware of when we do this. And we can unintentionally choose to surround ourselves with things that are reminders of what we do not want in our lives. And by doing that, we then validate their presence and give them power in our lives. Rather than stepping away from them, getting rid of them, we've brought them in to live with us. I had a friend who, for whatever reason, whenever she went on a trip, would collect these little shot glasses with little emblems on them that you can find in tourist shops. And she just, you know, she just was having a difficult time. And when we sat and we looked at it, you know, she had them displayed in one of those shadow boxes on her wall, very prominently lit the whole nine yards. And as we started to talk about them, it came out that she had grown up in a home with an alcoholic father and had a really horrific childhood. And yet, as an adult, the object she chose to collect was a shot glass. And what she had done is she had deliberately, not deliberately, but displayed this inescapable reminder of the pain of her childhood in the room she spent the most time in. And that's the kind of subconscious meaning to the objects we bring around ourselves that you have to pay attention to. And that's one of the most powerful things about writing is it gives you an opportunity to really go in and start looking at yourself and looking at your details. And the more you spend looking around your house going, you know, what does that light plate mean, the more you're going to start to understand what you have unconsciously gathered around you. It's like the difference, one of the, the examples I use is um, the difference between wearing uh, two people wearing a cross, like a little delicate gold cross, nothing fancy. One person is wearing this cross because it represents to them all that is good about life, all that is wonderful about life. The other person is wearing this cross because they're scared and they want across cross to keep them safe. So for one person, wearing that symbol is something that empowers them and makes them stronger. The other person is literally choosing to wear their fear every day next to their skin. They can't get away from it. So you have to think through very carefully as you're filling this room to your soul the objects that you were placing in it, and what they really, really mean. There are very few things in life that we go out and gather to ourselves because they are beautiful and because they are pleasing. We do it because they remind us of something. Whether it's something that has been or something that we want to have happen, they are symbols to us. So, when we do the exercise in that, I want you to just start start making, start thinking through, start making a list. What would go in this room? What would be so important to you that would go in this room? So, Nyla, if you want to start the music.
1: Okay. And while the music is going... I am going to ask you a question. Oh, Jeffrey. <laughs> you thought you were going to get a relax and drink some coffee or something, didn't you? I can do two things at once. <laughs> of course you can. You're a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to start out with is, and is the typical question I ask everybody, but I am always very curious about how a poet is born. And so <laughs> I wanted to find out if you could tell us how it started for you? What happened? Did you know lightning shoot from the sky? Did you know oil sprout from the ground? What happened?
2: I'm a I am sort of—I grew up hating poetry. Um, I thought it was the worst thing in the world, incredibly boring and stupid. Um, <laughs> I wound up working as a for a long time as a union iron worker or rock buster, and I specialized in bridges. And my one of my first foremen was this huge, scary dude. And when he would get really angry, he would pop up in the middle of the bridge and start shouting poetry at the top of his lungs. I mean, we're we're talking, you know, uh, Butler and Shakespeare and and all those old fashioned guys and, and Byron. And it turns out he used to be an English professor. And he left because he could make more money ironworking. But it was the first time I heard someone speak poetry with a passion. And for the first time, it just, it, I was interested, and then it just sort of went from there.
1: How old were you when you first started writing?
2: I actually, you know what, I wrote a lot um, from junior high on. I stopped when I was in college, and then I started again, I'd say my mid-twenties. I'm in my forties now.
1: Has it always been poetry, or did you also do short stories?
2: Um, I did a lot of short stories but they were and then I had one book that I had worked on but they were more everyone kept calling it literary fiction so I find it funny that as a poet I've developed more along the dramatic route because I think it fits with how I write narrative stuff too.
1: That's you um Do you remember the topic or do you remember the first poem you ever wrote?
2: I'm not going to admit to it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, come on, you're you and I on the phone, honey. No one's listening. <laughs> oh, is it is being recorded.
2: Um I wrote I, I wrote something about I think it was called The Sun Always Rises and I was in I think I was like fourteen years old. You know.
1: the very first poem I ever wrote Cassandra was in the third grade and it was mm-hmm. I like tigers best because 'cause they're the best dressed. Big stripes stand out photos, big stripes of uh, black and gold. There. Do <laughs> you feel better now?
2: Yeah, I do actually.
1: <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> See, I'm I'm here to please, you know, to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> uh-huh, um, okay. Are you ready to get started again? Yeah, I am. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop the music and turn it back over to you. Okay.
2: So, you have to visualize now. You've got, you've got your room started. Now, the, we'll say that you've got your room finished. You have a, a visual idea. And this is something that when you're actually working on a project like this, you don't really have to write out this room. You could actually draw it. You can actually, I, I recommend to people, go through magazines, find pictures of it, cut out all the things that would go in the room, just just to give you a real sense of reality about it. Now, we talked a little bit about that one door. Now, The room is empty. The chair is there. Standing outside the door are your hero and villain. And they're going to have this debate that's going to, you know, help them figure out who the heck is is going in there. But before we get there, we have to kind of look at who these two people are and what they represent to you. And before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about memory. Memory is an odd mix of the right and left side of the brain. The right side of the brain, as most people know, there's been a lot of books about it and drawing on the right side of the brain and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's the, they call it the creative seat. It's the emotional brain. And the left side is this very dry, shopping list-oriented type of brain. And that's kind of sort of true. I mean, it's like a, a simplified version. The right side of your brain is what holds your emotional memory. And when something happens and your emotions are triggered, it stays within the right side of your brain. Now, the right side of your brain has absolutely no sense of time whatsoever. It does have a memory of feeling and emotion. If something happens 10 years after, say, you got angry about something, something happens and makes you angry again, the right side of your brain will immediately go back 10 years and bring it to the present as if everything is happening at once. And that's where your emotional reactions start to come from. The left side of your brain is trying to put things, you know, we're going to process this and and keep going. While your right side of your brain is losing its mind, pardon the pun, you know, going, but all this is is horrible, this is bad, this is this, this is that, and the left side of the brain is going, but rationally, if you look at it, that doesn't match what's going on at all. Now, that would seem like a problem, except you can't live totally in the right side of your brain, or you won't be able to function, you won't be able to handle anything. You can't live totally in the left side of your brain, or you will have no ability to keep yourself safe or interpret anything around you that could be good for you. The right side of the brain seeks patterns. As you're working, as you're writing, one of the, one of the best ways if you ever run into like a writer's block or anything like that is to literally mix things up get out some old writing, put the poems in different orders, mix the pages, mix the words, start reading it. It will kick that right side of your brain into action because the right side of the brain will try and make a poem out of the mess you just created. Because the left side of the brain knows there's a poem in there, the right side of the brain is going to try and find it, and you're going to wind up coming up with something new. All of your motivation. Comes from the right side of your brain. And that's to do anything. If someone has a brain injury to the right side of their brain, they will not, even if they're perfectly functional, left, left brain perfectly functional, have all the logic there, they won't even be able to tie their shoes because they will not have the motivation to do it. All of your motivation comes from your emotions. Everybody has this but not all of us have the same order of experiences, and that's where we start getting our individuality. When you write in reaction to something, in the immediate, going back to our example of going down the street and seeing the homeless person and, and reacting to the uh, tragedy of that, when you're writing about that, when you when you get that passion, that in, that inspirational passion, you have to understand that what you're writing about doesn't really have that much to do with what you're seeing. It has a lot to do with what has occurred within you. And you have to be able to not just recognize that, but learn how to use that to make your reaction and how you present it to the scene with that person on the street that much stronger. Because reactionary work, while very powerful in the moment, has what's called no echo and that's because it's it's a it's a brief flash it's a you know there, there's a lack of the the sense of presence within it and that's what comes from starting to integrate your sense of what is within you that's reacting to what's outside of you and your actual immediate reaction to this and the written words is which is something that we forget a lot especially now that we use computers um, but it's still effective on the computer, is nothing but a symbol. I mean, literally, letters don't mean anything. They are an image. The right side of the brain is drawn to images. Um, It's another excellent way to break through any type of writer's block is to get off the computer and write by hand. The physical act of making images will start to engage that emotional side of your brain which has all of that history. Once you start to engage it, you can start working. Things will start to come out. You will get over your blocks. You will get past whatever is stopping you. Um, the key thing with writing and writing well is to understand why you write. And a lot of people, I even do it myself, get away with the shortcut of, Oh, if I don't write, you know, I don't feel right, it's part of, it's like air, I can't breathe. And it's a little it's a not a little bit, it's a lot more than that. It has to do with what your your what Lone is called the grand concept. What is your grand conception in life? What is what is your purpose? What is your motivation? What is that right side of your brain so keyed into? that it's going to use an emotional history to keep trying to direct the left side of your brain where your action is to keep you on this path. If you're a writer, if you're a poet, 10 to 1, even if you've only written three poems, you're going to start to notice a theme. You're going to start to notice a direction, things you are drawn to, places you want to be. That is all a part of your grand conception. And not everything you write is going to be involving that grand conception, but everything you write is going to be fueled by it. The easiest way to begin to understand what your grand concept of life is about is to begin to look back at the themes of your work for consistency, see whether or not you're constantly stating your case in conflict to something. Um, you have to start looking at where you're starting to place your identity. That's a very key thing in starting to understand your motivation and grand concept in life is how you express your identity. You can either expressed your identity through an anti-identity, through what you are not, or through a growing identity, through what you are. Your work, your past work, is going to start showing you which one you lean towards choosing. Look at the history of what you write. Are you constantly writing about how bad something is? And I'm not saying that you can't write about how bad something is. But are you writing, you know, is that the, the theme that, you know, this is horrible and I am separate? That's an anti-identity. Are you writing about this is horrible and I am, I am rising through it? And that's a growth identity. That's how you start to, to go in and begin to learn what it is that motivates, empowers you in life. Um, One of the other ways, easy ways to begin to understand what really is your overall motivation, fuel, and grand concept about your life and work is to look at what your idea is of what is good and what is bad. And the easiest way to do that is to look at it through who are your heroes and who are your villains. So what I want you to do is we're going to take um, a few minutes I want you to make two two headings. One's going to be your hero, one's going to be your villain. I want you to take some time to write some information about both of them. What is is the good guy? What is the bad guy? What makes them different? What do they look like? What do they smell like? What do they walk like? Um, What do they present like? Where, if you if you can think of it offhand, where are they present in your work? If you know your your work like the back of your hand, you know. Well, the hero was speaking in this poem. The villain was speaking in this one. They were both over in this one. Look at in those terms and start to give them your idea of of good and bad. Give your idea of what you want What you don't want What you fear What you hope for Give them physical bodies So Nyla If you want to start the music
1: I would be happy to Okay and I have another question for you um, One of the things you talked about Was how writing on paper Will really get you writing And be the visuals The right brain and, and all that Right I want to talk about writer's block which is something I don't believe exists. I think it's an urban legend But um, so what I wanted to ask you is what things do you do when you hit that inspirational
2: team well I mean writer's block <laughs> I kind of view writer's block like a merit badge like I think there's a, a powerful myth that says that you're not really a writer unless you have problems with writer's block um and basically, what you really have to do is just just go, just write, just write anything. There are a bunch of techniques that will help. To, obviously, if you're not capable to write the way you're used to, something is bothering you. That is true. But part of the act of writing is the act of creating and creating your own answers. And if you're not writing, you're not going to get an answer to that. And just because you can't write specifically what you want to write, doesn't mean that it isn't waiting for you to find it. And I just think, do anything, try anything, mix things up, give, give uh, the right brain patterns to look for. And I really, really recommend that people write by hand, just because of that whole aspect of the the image and the symbols prompting your brain and things like that. But Writer's block, you really have to remember, really has nothing to do about creativity, it has nothing to do about your writing, has a tendency to have a lot to do about you being overwhelmed in other areas of your life. That's kind of my feelings on it.
1: You know, it's really funny, one time, I, I think I believe that as well, you just write, it doesn't have to be good, you just write. It's kind of mm-hmm. like quicksand, if you don't write for one day... Then you say, oh, no, I must have writer's talk. And, and the more you say that, you get into existence, the deeper you think, and the harder it is to pen again. So I do yeah. really stupid stuff, like pull up every song title by Rod Stewart and write a poem out of nothing but song titles, or grab the wine bottle and write a poem off of only words and phrases on the back of a wine bottle, or a, a cereal box, or, I mean, anything. yeah, ble- anything, but make it fun. You know, people take their writing so seriously, I think, that, they don't understand it's supposed to be fun. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, one of the things I do, I do kind of a reverse on that. I will actually take the worst writing form, the one that is the most annoying and serious, and try and force myself to write it, and I'll wind up basically snapping.
1: Because <laughs> I don't want to do it so badly because it's so boring. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Mine would be the sonnet. <laughs> Oh, my God. I actually,
2: I actually did this on it once, but that was a while ago. But that's, I'm going to talk a little bit later about the nature of inspiration because I think that people's misunderstanding of inspiration, I think, plays a lot into their belief in writer's blocks.
1: So okay. I'm making a note of that right now. And if you want to pick up where you left off. Yeah,
2: give me a second. Okay, tell me one.
1: Be Am I on? Go ahead, yeah. oh. <laughs> you? I know you're not used to me being quiet, are you? Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> oh. So now we have
2: the hero and the villain. Um, one of the things about this exercise is right now, this, the, this version of it is a very, very broad, very melodramatic. You know, they're talking to your soul, but you can actually use this, kind of the formula of this exercise to address any type of question. It doesn't have to be a hero and villain sitting in that chair. It could be your husband and your boyfriend from high school deciding who's going to sit there. You know, it could be your mother or or your father. You know, you you can put anybody in this chair, but going through the process of really identifying who they are and then subsequently how it gets decided that they sit in that chair versus the other person is very important in starting to reveal to you not just what goes on inside you, but what is going on around you. When you write about anything, you give it power. And you may think, I've been running into a lot of people who are writing um, kind of socially activist, politically activist kind of poetry, um, revolutionary poetry, and the tricky thing about that is that you may think and believe you are addressing an ill, you know, and dismantling it through the power of the words. But if you aren't really paying attention to all these things we've talked about that seem unrelated about what these metaphors mean, what these images mean, what, you know, what do they not just mean to you but to other people, and when you put them together, do they have new meaning? You may not actually be doing anything to dismantle that ill that you're so concerned about talking about You may actually be Reinforcing it When you give something Attention You give it power Your job as A writer, in fact your job as a Person is to make sure That you retain the control Over the potential Influences around you The more you give something attention, saying constantly being angry about something, the more power you give that thing over you to destroy your energy and focus. I mean, you can write poem after poem after poem about the injustice of health care. Just poem after poem. And you can be good, and you can have this, and you can have that, and you can have that. But a part of what is also happening, going back to that idea of tension, is that All of your energy, all of your focus is going on really elevating this problem without holding it within a structure that suggests a solution. Poetry is one of the most powerful art forms in history. It has almost literally been around since air. Um, it has been not only the voice of religion, it's been the voice of the politics, revolution, of news, it's carried people's stories, their history, it has allowed for centuries of illiterate people to remain a part of their culture and society. Poetry and poets are the only art form that whenever a dictatorship comes into being they immediately go after the poets because one of the things that the poet does is they speak a very very emotional language they can plug into people's emotions and get them riled up get them right on board and especially when you get into the whole concept of speaking poetry you're creating music these tones resonate within the human body They've done numerous studies with babies and how they respond to different tones of voice. And they, one of the things they found that was so shocking a couple of years ago, and in fact they, they just did another study to, to confirm it, was that if you took a hungry baby and you offered it food, at the same time you had someone else cooing to the baby, that baby will go towards that expression of love. Over food, even if they're starving That is the power of the human voice So when you're choosing your words And putting together your poetry You have to consider also How these things will sound Because whether or not you intend to read it aloud People hear a voice in their head If in you're deciding to write about health care problems, whatever, if you are constantly creating a staccato that is monotonous, that's exactly what it does. It creates monotony that's going to lull people, and they will not hear your message. The more you use the same tone, the same syllable, the same metaphor, the same level of engagement, the less people will hear what you are saying. We thrive on kind of um, what would be a good example. We thrive on a kind of tidal rhythm. That is what is natural to life. A lot of times, you see um, a lot of poets will just keep building, not even building, but reach a plateau and stay there. It'll be one one level. Of speaking, one level of writing As far as how the words together, the phrases, the this, the that But if you are trying to write something that conveys a meaning That wants to teach someone, wants to grab someone and say Hey, listen to me, I have something to say You need to engage them in that kind of tidal rhythm You have to allow people to hear what you're saying And then go back inside themselves These are things that you do not just through the rhythm of the words that you use, and the phrasing, and the pacing, and the form, but also again to the objects and symbols that you use to incorporate into your poem. One of the, um, and this comes out of Aristotle's Poetics, well, one of the most powerful ways to convey tragedy is in the middle of the description of an extraordinarily tragic moment. To throw in humor just a little shot of humor because it gives people a resting point if you can give people a resting point in the middle of your horror, they will be that much better equipped to listen more and to remember what you said now whether or not you're writing you know political things I think that all poets, whether you just picked up your pen, whether you've been writing for 20 or so years, all poets have something exceedingly important to say. And that's because all poets write from the human experience. All human experience is of, it is priceless, absolutely priceless. There is not one person listening, there's not one person walking down the street who doesn't even know that this is going on, who does not have an experience that is not worth sharing with someone else, because going back to the idea of the emotions, while we all come with the same set of emotional capabilities, we all experience very similar experiences, although in different orders, making us individuals. But the thing is, there's a universality to it. And then that, in turn, goes back to the choice between using a personal symbol versus a universal symbol. If you can start to recognize within your work where the rhythm is, where you need to pull the reader in and remind them, I wrote this. There's a lot of me in this. And then you give it back to them. And you say, but I know you're there, too. I know you get it. Poetry is about communication. Back to, um, this is just an aside, but back to the whole idea about dictators taking over the poets and stuff like that. I mean, you never really hear about... Uh, the national guitarist being put in prison in a country—it's always so and so poet is in prison for whatever. This is one of the reasons is that poets and poetry have an extraordinary power to communicate to people that crosses cultural and social boundaries. Being a poet has comes with an awful lot of responsibility. And like I said, you are writing from human experience, the most important thing in the universe. And the same way that you would not or try not to live your life carelessly, you shouldn't write carelessly either. Everything you write is like a jewel. And this jewel that you write is what goes in the crown that sits on that grand concept we talked about, your purpose in life, the reason you do this, the direction you go. Everything you create gains its beauty from that and gives it back to it. It's one big circle. And everything you write, whether or not you think it's good, whether or not you're in a position to say, oh, this is part of my stage of process and I'm moving this way, blah, 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 it still has worth, it still has value, there's absolutely no reason that you should not show it to anyone, there's absolutely no reason you should and this is my pet peeve, that you should not save everything that you write. If you get stuck, if you feel like you don't know how to write, if you feel like you are blocked, Go get out the old poems. You can either edit them or I guarantee you if you just sit down and start reading what you created, you will start writing again because it is a part of your voice. It is a part of your purpose. It's something that, and I won't go too much into this now because of the limited time, Um something that makes, that is of inestimable value in life. To have people whose role, whose calling is to create things is a part of what will allow the human race to survive anything. And a lot of people, when they start writing poetry, think, that's not me. (laughs) You know, you start writing because you're in pain. You start writing because you're lost. You start writing because, you know, you're so alone. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to tell how you feel. So you start writing, and you start writing, and you start writing poetry in a journal, and it feels like it's, Taken from inside you When written on a piece of skin And you can't see How you're going to step beyond Something that personal That painful and that revealing Into standing up in front of 50 or 60 different people And reading it As if, almost as if it didn't matter But the thing is it does matter Because back again to the Universality of experience There is someone else sitting in that room Who hasn't sat down And started to write yet Who hasn't discovered that outlet yet And when you read What your experience has been And that person hears it It's going to open the door And it might just save them Poetry is not A What do you call it It is not a self-indulgent thing Because again It has to do with that sense of human experience. It is not all about you. It may feel that way, it may be fueled in that, but in the end, what your poem is about is about speaking about a condition that many more people than you suspect share. Maybe not exactly in the same language, but they do share it. Um... I write a lot of heavy things I've written, I have the videos out If some of you have seen them I mean, The Demon of Providence is not exactly a um, holiday tale Um, One of the challenges that I set for myself And I'm slowly gathering some other poets to do He's like, I called them up. In fact, one of them you may know, Q, and I called them up, emailed them, and they said, "Hey, you know what? Why don't we try writing something that's upbeat, positive?" And I immediately backed off from that, and I was like, well, "Well, kind of, sort of positive." And what we came up with is an idea we're working on. In fact, you you can use this also as a writing exercise. Is something called "Dear Child," and we are slowly gathering a bunch of poets who are taking this concept of riding on a train on the subway and seeing this child who's just dressed up going someplace. We don't know him. Looking out the window. And what you would say to that child, um, not in the the vein of, oh, life is a horrible thing and blah, 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 and don't lose your, you know, not a cliche, not a horrible thing, but what do you wish was said to you when you were a child, especially as an adult now, looking back, what do you wish someone had stopped and said to you? Um, And it's funny because... I think all of us involved in this are these heavy writers. Some of us write revolutionary poems. I'm a dramatic poet. I write very heavy things. And when we're confronted with writing something that has this very, very kind of positive, upbeat thing, it is phenomenally hard. I mean, really, really hard. But it's a challenge we all want to take on because I think a lot of us are getting to the point in our lives where are like, well, you know, life isn't all roses, but it isn't all bombs either. And you start to shift your perception of what needs to be focused on. Because wherever your focus is, is where your energy is going. What with your... With your hero and your villain, who was easier for you to describe? Who was it easier for you to find the words to describe as powerful um, in, a, in a sense that was believable? Was it your, your hero or your villain? The majority of what we take in as entertainment these days is really focused on glorifying the villain. A lot of us have, going back to what I talked to at the very beginning, have a, a dictionary inside of us of symbols and metaphors that are based in what a villain is. We are not very well developed in being able to express in a believable sense what a hero is. It's become a very difficult thing to write. But I want... uh, the The other question I wanted to ask you about that is, looking at your hero or your villain, which do you think more represents your life? If you were to go back to the very beginning of this workshop, I had you making just a little list about, you know, who are the people in your life, here are the objects, here are this, here are that. Which of those people and objects fit with what you describe as your hero and villain? Where is that balance in your life? And did you recognize before that that balance was where it is? This plays back again into the idea that we draw things to ourselves without being really aware of what they mean. We are on a, on a present level, on the left brain level, we're very aware of what they mean. But on the right brain, we sort of are always dismissing that right side of the brain. And it's the right side of the brain that is always talking with that emotional history. And filling, filling our lives with these echoes. And it's not just with the objects that this is done. It's with the people we choose to bring around us. So the next exercise. Your hero and villain are standing outside of the room. Only one may enter and sit down to wait for your soul. What is going to occur between them to decide who gets to enter and which one enters and sits down? So, Nyla, if you want to start the music.
1: Okay. And what I would like to do is go ahead and expand on the last question and you want to talk about the nature of inspiration.
2: The nature of what? Inspiration? No, I'm not going to talk about that. It's in the next section. Oh,
1: okay. (laughs) Never mind. Well, then, what I will ask you is what responsibilities do you think come with being a poet and um, what it means to you to be a writer?
0: Um,
2: I think poetry can. It's hard because um, poetry and writing involves so much of the other art forms, and yet a lot of people don't realize it. And I think that poetry helps to explain the world to people who don't have that kind of creative bent to sort of do that metaphorical interpretation. And I think that, um, especially for a poet, there's a profound responsibility to make sure that the buttons, literally, especially with the reading aloud that the buttons they're pushing in people aren't just getting them worked up. That they're actually um, taking responsibility for offering a solution as well. I mean, that's, that I think is my big thing. And, I, and I, I think the other really strong responsibility of writers and poets is that they have a gift to speak for other people, to imagine words in other people's mouths, And there are an awful lot of people in the world who do not have the ability to speak, and they need people who can speak for them. And I really strongly feel that a poet's responsibility is to stand up for those who cannot speak for themselves and represent them.
1: That's just my own thing. I've been
2: writing down little quotes.
1: What? I've been writing down a little quotes from what you've been saying. This has been incredible, Cassandra. I cannot even tell you how amazing it's been so far.
2: Well, I'm having a blast. My cold is almost
1: gone. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and everything, Go ahead and stop the music. And if you'd like to continue,
2: yes. Let me swallow my tea. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually okay. been I've actually been really sick for a week, so I'm I'm amazed that I'm getting doing this. Um, you sound great. <laughs> i great. I kind of like my new voice though. Um, the last section of this exercise is called the conversation, and this is actually this is something that we we just talked about while the music was playing a little bit. Um, we use art in writing. I mean, any type of art, music, and writing to explore our internal landscapes, to heal ourselves, to communicate to others, and also to communicate to ourselves again. A lot of times we will write things and not really make the connection that we are having a conversation, an internal conversation outside of ourselves on a piece of paper. We'll we'll understand that um, that other people are going to see this. That this is oh, this is so this is brilliant. This is creative. This is I've made all these brilliant connections. But we forget to bring it back inside of ourselves and see that what we were really doing is. Writing gives us the ability to kind of step outside of ourselves for a second and and look at what's going on inside someplace else. Now, the problem that a lot of people have is they just kind of leave it on the paper and they don't take it back in what they've learned. Um, I think part of becoming a great writer is developing the ability to own what you write. And I am not talking about... I'm not talking about, a, yeah, I own that, I wrote that. I'm talking about whatever you came up with on the paper, whatever map you followed, and wherever you arrived, that you pick it up and bring it back inside of yourself and internalize it, and you learn from it. If you listen to a lot of poets or, or read a lot of poets, go to any Barnes & Noble or anything, pick up some books whatever, You'll see there's a difference in the growth of poets. Some of them go, they might start writing in their 20s or 30s, and by the time they're 90 or 100, they're still going and growing, going and growing. Wonderful. The other group starts writing, and it's almost like they hit a loop, and they start to write pretty much the same thing. If not the same thing, it's the same rhythm, the same imagery, or maybe every five poems you're cycling back. And what that comes from is when someone has stopped taking responsibility for what they write. There's there's two different types of responsibility with writing. Nyla and I were just talking about this. One is that um, poetry is a communication to other people. Poetry does have an historically... Has had the ability To take an idea from one place And communicate it to another But through the use of metaphor And image So it can cross those cultural and social boundaries That is one responsibility You are communicators of ideas You are people who can Transcend Boundaries You can transcend class And, and social issues you can, you can walk Barefoot into the palace and people will listen to you. Because you are speaking a language that transcends whatever has been made in the present. Because you are you are speaking within the, the realm of that collective unconscious because you use a lot of the imagery and the sound that's there. That's that's one of the responsibilities. 9 and I were talking about that I really very strongly believe um Maybe not so much for for someone who's just starting out because this this can get very tricky and overwhelming, but because of that skill, poets um, poets and and writers and artists can do something very, very unusual. They can step into somebody else's life without knowing them, without seeing them, without even meeting them. They can step into somebody else's life. And tell them what it's like. They can literally take on someone else's skin and feel it. And then they can turn around and give it back out. A poet can speak for people who have no voice. And there's a lot of people like that in the world. A poet can speak of things... That people are scared to speak of That it is not acceptable to talk about But a poet can cast it in such a way And this is very important A poet can speak of it in such a way That others will listen I did a lot of work out in Las Vegas With um, former gang members A lot of these guys had just gotten out of prison For like um, 12, 14 years on murder charges, stuff like that And we got them involved in the poetry community. And um, the thing that was interesting was to go through the process with them of, you know, working with them on the writing and the topics and their real concern. it goes back to that fear, that revelatory fear. What they wanted to write about, what they needed to get out, were experiences so out of the norm for people coming to a poetry club that they were scared to get up there because it made them feel like an outsider. Now, it didn't help that they were already coming in covered head-to-toe and tattoos way before this was popular. Um, But it made them feel that 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 to them didn't make them feel like an outsider. That was kind of a part of their identity going back to that sense of anti-identity. It was that what was inside of them they knew nobody else in that room had any frame of reference for. And that was what was going to make them feel isolated and alone. But we worked with them. There's a bunch of us worked with them in how to use metaphor, use imagery, where they could follow up, you know, something very graphic, very real, very theirs. With almost, it was almost like they did a translation for the audience. So that the audience could see Okay, yeah, I do Get where this is going And the best thing about it is When they were done They just couldn't believe They said for the first time I stood up And when I spoke my life I felt like I had the right To be living And that's That's the aspect of Another aspect of poetry that makes it Such a, a powerful thing That that comes with a ton of responsibility. The the better you learn to write, the more responsibility you bear because it is a role in the community. To be a poet is, is a role in the community. You speak for people who can't speak. You speak of things that are hidden. You speak not just of the bad things, you need to speak of the good things too. You have to represent the totality of living. And you do it to remind people. Art, writing, serves as a mirror. And these mirrors can show us not only what there is, but also reflect the actions that we are doing. If you follow my blog at all, you know that I've been working, technically, um, <laughs> for about five or six years on something called The City of Love. And only in the past few months have I actually gotten to the point where I am literally outlining it and getting ready to start writing it. It is going to be close to an epic poem, little more of a dramatic poem. And what The City of Love is is really a mirror and reflection of the growth in my own life. And that's one of the reasons it has been so hard to write. Because it is such a personal mirror that I almost I get to points of it when I'm outlining it and I'm like, ooh, I don't know how to live like that yet. So I have to kind of stop writing and go straighten out my life and then I can come back in and keep working on it. Which is all well and good, except as I'm writing it, I also have to translate which this very, very personal record of my life into a language that other people reading it are like, that's my life too. And achieving that balance is very important in your work. Because if you write just for other people, you will lose interest. You will lose your power. You will lose your motivation. If you write just for yourself, you will just keep going one big circle. There's a balance that has to be achieved. And as much as I say the poet has a role in the community, no role for any community is worth anything more than the individual that fills it. You have to maintain a balance in everything you do, in every poem that you do. You have to maintain that balance of I wrote this, And now I'm sharing it with you. The necessity of learning to edit, and and people hate when I get to this part. (laughs) The necessity of learning to edit as a means of developing yourself mechanically as a writer also develops you creatively. Editing develops your awareness of your inspiration. It teaches you the language of your subconscious your your language. I mean too often we take a lot of shortcuts, even with ourselves, even subconsciously, when we think we're writing this is what's really inside of me. we're taking shortcuts. we are using phrases we've gotten used to on the television we've gotten using phrases we've gotten used to in books or in music, and we lose the not interest but to focus, to give ourselves the time to really dig through to find out what we are really saying. Because it's a great thing to sit down in a bar or a coffee shop somewhere and feel all inspired and get that flash, and suddenly, you know, your blood's up and everything. Words are flying. They come out. It's that flash of inspiration. It's a miracle. And everybody loves how that miracle feels. The thing is, there's a saying... Um, if you know, if you've been to my bio, you know that I have a Master's of Divinity, so a lot of my imagery is very sort of Christian related, but in Divinity School, we used to talk about the miracle. We used to talk about the the failing of the miracle, and how there were people who um, would experience this miracle, whatever it was, you know. Um, you know, the Virgin Mary's face in a jam sandwich, you know, a visitation for something, uh, a mass healing, this powerful, powerful uh, miracle that gave you this this rush, this adrenaline, this feeling of suddenly being alive and present, and here I am. And then when the miracle was gone, they would spend the rest of their time waiting for another one to happen. And because they did that, they never... Ever participated in their faith. The greatest myth about writing is inspiration, the flash of inspiration. It does not
0: exist.
2: What we think is the flash of inspiration, the right side of your brain is spinning, it's doing all its stuff, it's making its connections, finding its pattern, it's trying to speak. We live in a left-brain-oriented world. The older we get, the more adult we become, the more left-brain we have to become. We have more responsibilities. We have places to be, things to do. The more we do that, the harder it is for this right side of the brain to break through. The left side's very ordered. On the few moments that that right side of the brain breaks through, there's your flash of inspiration. However, all of that's been sitting up on your head, accumulating constantly. It's just that you've been too busy to listen to it. You have to develop the habit of being inspired. You have to understand that everything around you, every living, breathing moment is inspiring you. You have to learn to give yourself the time to let that right side of your brain work with that left side and bring it out. Because if you keep waiting for this flash of inspiration you will not write that much. You will most likely stop writing because as you get more frustrated, what happens when you get frustrated? You try and solve the frustration. If you're trying to solve the frustration, what happens? You're becoming more and more left brain oriented. You're looking for steps, processes, walls, a way to get out of it, a way to get away from the pain. The pain always comes from the right side of the brain. Everything you look at The more you look at things, the more you pay attention to them, even if it's just to write down snippets of phrases, the more you're going to start engaging this constant state of being inspired. I mean, someone once asked me, they're like, where do you get your ideas from? I mean, you turn around and suddenly you've got like demons running around and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, I make time every day, no matter what it is, I make time that I just start paying attention. And if it's not paying attention, it's just listening. And you'll find if you can just calm yourself, even if it's just driving to work, you just do 15 minutes a day where you just listen to yourself, you'll hear that there's so many different ideas going on. I mean... It's like going back, if you if you edit old work, if you read over your old work, if you, you keep a, a small book and just write down, and, and this is something I recommend, keep a small book and, and write down not just the little snippets of lines that come into your head, but as things strike you, write down a description of where you are, like the room. Write down a description of what was there, because that will sit in your head, and you can go back to that later. And you'll start to pull things out. You'll start to pull out those layers of stories that are hidden in those objects. The last exercise, the conversation, the door opens, and what is said to you. Nyla, if you want to start the music.
1: We would love to and then I have another question for you right uh <laughs> oh oh okay I right. almost
2: just killed myself
1: <laughs> well we've got 26 minutes left it's gone so fast we need more time <laughs> what I wanted to find out is what are some of the struggles that you personally have had as a writer and you know I'm sure you we all feel that way sometimes you know why didn't you give up and what kept you motivated? How did you keep yourself motivated?
2: Oh, God. You know, it's, it's a constant struggle. I mean, writing is, at this point, writing is something that I love and hate. Um, there's a part of me that doesn't want to do it anymore. There's a part of me that just wants to do it, but doesn't want to show any of it anymore. And then I just get back into it, and I enjoy it so much, I keep going. But I think for me the hardest thing, and it's a constant, is finding the time to write. And even though, like, I'm writing full-time, I'm teaching it full-time, and all that stuff, it's still hard because you you just get caught up in stuff and in reminding yourself how important it is to set aside that time. And um, I think that a lot of that has to go, goes back to just culturally, we're not really set up to... Value time for ourselves, and it's a hard thing to explain to other people in your life, especially if you you have families and children and stuff like that. That you need you need your hour or so to write. Um. Yeah, I think that's I think that's been the. A- and then for me now, as, as I get older and the themes that I'm working on, sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to write about this. Because I'm really starting to look, to explore deeper and deeper into myself. And sometimes that's, those are places that I would really wish I was an accountant and could just skip over that, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I used to go out... Uh a coffee shop where they had an open mic playing music and I used to listen to him all the time and
2: yeah.
1: this one guy kept coming up and bugging me all the time and finally I looked at him and I said look if the effing pin is moving don't talk to me it worked real well people understand that <laughs> <laughs> that is you know, really we,
0: good
1: yeah you know we just have to we have to do that we have to set boundaries for ourselves and people need to respect those and we can't be afraid of doing that so yeah. alright I am going to stop the music because I want to make sure that we get everything in Okay I think I'm gonna stop it. There we go, okay, go ahead, hen okay um
2: so that essentially is the room i uh, like I said it's just it's a framework and it's a framework to start showing you the excessive amounts of things you need to pay attention to and think about when writing something as simple as you know an an eight-line poem, but when has an eight-line poem ever been simple? The thing is that the weight of words, the power of words aren't just going to affect you, they're going to affect other people. And especially in this day and age when open mics and radio shows like this are are becoming increasingly popular, it's becoming increasingly a, a, a source of entertainment I think that the the sense of responsibility for what we choose to say has become greater. I mean, you have a lot of people who come into these poetry clubs who are not writers, um, who come in because they know they are going to be affected somehow. And as poets, we need to have a care with how we are choosing to get that effect. How important is that applause, um, which is something that always lends me a little bit of, of concern, the, the applause in the clubs, because I am kind of of mind that in some ways the whole open mic with applause and stuff like that um, can actually do a great deal of harm to a fairly new writer. Because that is a very powerful form of feedback to get. And it can be devastating if the next time you go up and read your next poem, you don't get that kind of feedback. So for most people, the default for that, if you haven't really developed the kind of shell to resist that kind of experience, is to then go back to the one that they applauded and write that one again. It takes guts to grow. It takes guts to change, to be willing to step out on a limb and say, I know you knew me this way, but this is who I am now. Writing is a part of the process that brings you to who you're going to be. It can be. You can use it that way because in the same way that... People will use, like, role-playing to get themselves used to doing something. Writing, especially poetry, can function in the same way for you. You can play within this room that you've created with these two opposites that have to make a decision that's believable about who gets to speak to you. In other words, who gets to influence you? You can use this framework... Concerning anything in your life, any issue you want to examine, any, any change you want to approach. You just take them and change from hero and villain, change it to whatever are those two opposites. Not the tension, but the opposites. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up Is that um, tomorrow? Actually, I have a meeting with a bunch of people, business type people, that we're working on bringing. I actually have a whole series of workshops in this vein, and this is this is from a series of book called Eat Not the Heart. which, there's a version out, but I'm bringing out another version that's going to be more based in the writing exercises. And uh, it's actually, the official title is Eat Not the Heart, How to Live Without Losing Your Life. And we're meeting tomorrow because we're going to be putting together an online version of all the workshops that I have in this book. And one of the things I'm really trying to do is to get it into a separate tiered program, so that you don't have to come in and spend three or four hundred dollars to do a workshop. If you've only got a dollar ninety-nine, you can go do something. And then I want to have like a free section, because one of the things about this whole concept of writing and examining things is you cannot forget that. Again, it goes back to the role. of of having a role in the community, no matter who you are and where you get to, you are only as good as the person you turn around and help come up. And you are only as good a teacher as many of your pupils surpass you. That is the mark of a good teacher. The mark of a good poet is seeing a poet who has just started out, that they have helped rise to heights beyond what you have reached. The concept is not to become the best of the best, the top of the top, the number one, you know, whatever, whatever. The concept is to make sure that the next person behind you goes further. And that's something that I have seen starting to really get an emphasis on in the, in the poetry community. And I think that even if you are just starting out writing, it's important to remember this as a goal because you must talk to other poets. An important part of, of growing as a writer is maintaining a dialogue with the community of writers because they will help you. It not only will they help you, you will help them. It does not matter if you've only written two words in your life and you're now working on your third word and they've got six books out. You probably have something to say to them that they can't see anymore because they have a different set of experiences. And I think that's pretty much what I have to say.
1: I am absolutely floored, Sandra. I mean, how long have you known me now? Have you ever heard me or seen me speechless?
2: No, in fact, I felt like I lost you.
1: <laughs> it's, like, it's like I've been talking to the yeah. air. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have to worry about shushing myself. My mouth has been a gap the entire time, and I did. Uh, wow, <laughs> wow! I had no clue what we were in store for today. This has been absolutely, absolutely incredible. I've brought, well, I, want, um, I want,
2: hmm? Go ahead. I warn people in my blog to bring aspirin. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. <laughs> okay. We have 16 minutes left. Is there mm-hmm. anything that we have not touched on that you want to... Um, I know you have some projects coming up. And we've got one caller with their hand up. I don't know what they want. We're not taking callers on this show. So, but they have their hand up. So if you're brave and want to take a call, we can do that. But I do want to make sure before, I mean, that's that. I want to make sure that you get the information. You have something coming up pretty amazing. And we need to get that information out there. <laughs> uh, Bless you. Sorry. Sneeze
2: those poetic well,
1: germs over here on me. Besides, I lose five pounds every time I get sick. <laughs>
2: Oh my God! Well, I think I should have up. Um, I think within a month, if you if you go to 11words.com or find me on Facebook and friend me, you'll get the notice of when the online courses are going to be. Um, Available And like I said, there uh, there's a lot in this vein. There's a lot more that's going to be strictly writing. But we're designing the whole thing so that you will be able to access them from literally anywhere in the world, as long as you have an Internet connection. Um, that, I think, is really my big thing.
1: That is absolutely amazing. And when is that? What did you say that was going to get started?
2: We're having the meeting tomorrow. We're actually having the very geeky webinar tomorrow, um, <laughs> and because uh, what we're doing is we're taking them. Actually, been been working on the on the book, um, so I'm also meeting some agents about about that book and trying to tie everything together to get all of that out. So, and then. Uh, Hopefully I'm going to have another video or two coming out soon. So
1: that will be fun. Okay, that's another thing I need. I want you to give your links real quick. And oh, okay. And also how they can find your videos. You guys, these are going to blow your mind. Her videos on YouTube, oh, holy shit, I'm telling you. You're <laughs> going gonna to lose your mind. And then, sweetheart, because I was so excited to hear you talk, I totally skipped over my notes. And I would really like for you to read something to us.
2: Oh, sure. Um let's my, my main site is loveandwords.com. dot com. If you go to loveandwords.com... dot <laughs> com you will find buttons that will get you to my MySpace and my Facebook page because I can't remember what they are, but I know that the buttons will get you there. <laughs> awesome. And then, uh, well, I have two Facebooks. They won't let me erase the one, but I know that the one, if it's got the blue picture, the one that's on the flyer, then that's the right one, um But uh, if you, you can also get to the videos there, but if you go to YouTube, it's just YouTube.com slash Cassandra Tribe, that's one word, and my whole page is there, and there's a bunch of strange videos there. Um, They
1: are incredible.
2: Well, I love the fact that you almost picked the picture of me as Philemon. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That was sexy. (laughs) Yeah, the one with me in the wig. Mhm. Uh, mhm. Yeah. Um, the lighting was. Good. But yeah,
2: that's that's basically my main links. So I I bought a brought a poem with me that I don't normally read, but was kind of fitting for the the workshop, and it's from my book, The Greedy Heart, and um, this is called The Architect. In my life, I have built whole cities from scraps of words, quilted into phrases and baled into walls, knitting them strong corners with wire from broken dreams. I have built rooms of echoes and forgotten things. Stacking bricks of phrases, I imagine these buildings to be architectural wonders, when my life would be better served to realize they are only... People come to live here convinced I have saved their history, adorned it and made altars in their names. I soften the oubliettes hidden among my false rooms with cushions of soiled letters that speak of love and end in doom and make of these forgotten rooms places my travelers long to be. To forget and remember at once, to live in a dream and bear no responsibility. It's what they come here for. With blank sheet I wander, pencil sharp and ready to reject all that I see is real and transform it into shelters of should-be. Even though my buildings list on uneven foundations. Everyone walks about with their arms extended to catch themselves should they fall, as if this state of things were normal and expected. I build because I have nothing better to do. Do you believe that? You shouldn't because it's a lie. I build because behind the gates of the east city, the one that is locked and no one may enter without me. I am building a city of jewels and stone foundations, windows that stretch far into the sky, floors that are warm, walls that are cool, and there are no forgotten places to be. Everything there is crafted with skill down to the smallest detail. And everything out here, all my paper walls and leaning roofs, has been remade there but well. Made to last until the end of time. And people live there. Yes, they do. I seem to be the only one interested in stepping outside. People live there. Anyone can move in. All you have to do is realize the extent of these paper lives and begin to desire permanent things.
1: And that's it. You know, I think that I may just blow up my computer listening to the archives of this show. You what? I think I may blow up my computer listening to the archives of this show.
2: You know, I would like to know how every time I read something and you're there, my cat attacks me.
1: <laughs> my cat was like hanging off my butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my God. Now, see, this is a time I wish we were on we were on TV and not radio. Wow, I'm really
2: glad. I'm really glad.
1: You know, um, I've heard you say that before. That's awesome. I like your kitty. Oh, good. I'll send her to you. Okay. All right, sweetheart. Is there anything else that we did not cover that you would like to share with us, any parting words of wisdom?
2: No, I just wanna thank you so much for asking me to do this. It really was an honor.
1: Oh, you have no idea this is going to be a this is going to be a best of show, that's for sure. I'm going to, since we do have one caller with the hand up, do you wanna do you wanna be brave and see who we have on the line? Sure. Okay, let's go ahead and bring them on. Area code seven two seven, you're on the air.
3: Uh hi it's uh, uh Frankie Metro. Uh,
1: hey Frankie hey, how are you? are you?
3: Hey hey I I really enjoyed like the the last portion of the show that I caught here. Uh I was very intrigued by the conversation she was having about um the responsibility that we have as writers um you know in this uh, the new formats that we have with Block Talk Radio and and what have you. Um I was kind of curious about the some of that and I'll, I'll probably just send you a message, Cassandra, and talk to you about it. Cause it, I don't want to, I know that you guys are almost out of time, but I just wanted to tell yeah. you I really enjoyed your read and I really enjoy your work. Um, I do read the blogs and, uh, yeah, that's it. Well,
1: thank you very much. Do you want to take a moment and, and address this question at all?
2: Um, yeah, the, um, I, one of the things I've enjoyed Although sometimes it gets frustrating and I think you probably know how this is Is watching how the blog talk radio community Has been developing
3: Because
2: mm-hmm. um, it's been kind of Some slipping, some sliding But I think what's what's astonishing to me Which is what's really exciting to me Is start to see how the different shows Are starting to talk together And, um, and also starting to see How all the different hosts are starting to work to really encourage uh, encourage writers, and to to not necessarily give people equal time, but to become invested in them. And I think that, as far as like especially the blog talk radio format, I think that's that's a real primary response responsibility. There is is the people who put that together investing the time to really make. The call-in shows, you know, a part of this is a part of a process of us all getting better,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, that has just been very, very impressive to me.
3: Um, well, I, I, I was, uh, I was just curious because you were talking about, you know, the responsibility of the material that, you know, sometimes we put out there for some of the new writers that come onto the program, some of the new listeners and whatnot, um, you know, and and, and, and I think, in, in my own personal opinion, there's a there's a real thin line between free expression and, um, overexerting oneself and, and uh, getting their point across and, and, uh, yeah. you know, and I was just curious as to like what you think, um, uh, really constitutes, um, material that should be presented to um, a new listener, a new writer, um, as opposed to the material that wouldn't be.
2: I think for a new, I'd see, I think there would be a difference between a, a someone who's a new writer and someone who is a, like, um, we have several poetry clubs here, like dinner clubs or poetry clubs, and a lot of people that come there are not writers. Um, they are coming just because they like the poetry, they like, they like the effects of the poetry, and that's a situation where I think a great deal of care needs to be taken in what is being presented. I think as far as working with a new writer, they do need exposure because they do need to start learning about um, the different effects and power of different types of poetry. And basically, it's 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 a it's a situation of mentoring. You know, you can't mentor someone by telling them not to do something or hiding them something from them. But neither are you going to let your apprentice go out and you know, I don't know. You know build the town cathedral when they haven't learned how to use mortar yet,
0: right. so
2: it's, you kind of have to i think i think part of part of the responsibility is having a developing awareness of who exactly your audience is
1: i I don't want to cut you cut this short you guys, but we're down to the last few minutes and okay. uh, yeah. so Frankie, Thank I you. really appreciate you calling in and um being there and sitting on hold so long.
3: <laughs> oh, no, no. Thank you guys for letting me come on and, and say hello. And I, I really enjoyed the show. And next time I hope to catch uh, the full thing. So thank you very much. I'll well, well, make
1: sure you go back email and me later. the archives.
3: Yeah, yeah, yes. we'll do. We'll do. Thank you guys.
1: You're welcome. You know, what you were saying, I, I agree with totally. I think that even a negative. Um, experience hearing a poem can be as much as a, men, a mentoring a, a, and an impression wise on a new poet as hearing a great poem. all of right. it helps develop their voice you know you can 't sit there and protect a child you know they have right. to be exposed to all of it in order to develop their own voice and their own opinions and so you know even even you know but I also think as professionals, you have to you know, you, people, I've been in shows where someone's gotten kicked out of a show before because they've come in and just read something horrible, inappropriate, not horrible, inappropriate for the venue. And I think as professionals that we have, if we go out to a, a place, a venue, and we're going to put our work on display, we have to be professional enough to choose pieces that are appropriate for our audience and not sit there and rest on the I'm not going to censor my writing clause. You well, know, we have to be professionals and, and be aware of what we're putting out there. To who?
2: Shoot, Nyla, that was the one thing I forgot to bring up, was I wanted to hammer on the fact that being a poet is a profession.
1: <laughs> it is. It really is. You know, and it's and it, it out there.
2: hmm
1: If you share your voice, you have to be responsible for it as well. Cassandra, will you please give mm-hmm. your link some more time for those who are listening or not in the chat room?
2: It's loveandwords.com, all spelled out, or you can go to youtube.com slash Cassandra Tribe. My
1: cat just learned to
2: pick up coins You hear that in the back That's awesome Cassandra,
1: I cannot thank you enough I absolutely am just Indebted to you forever and ever and ever And you can send me your cat, I don't care anything For being here and sharing Everything that you shared today And um, I know that we talked about you Coming back and doing a follow-up show So I'm hoping that we can get that scheduled again Very soon so you guys will get to hear from her again Which I'm very excited about And, um, you know, again, just thank you. Thank you for everything that you shared with us, and you're amazing, honey.
2: Thank you. I think the same thing about you.
1: Oh, thank you. All right, I'll give you a call after the show. Thank you for being here, everybody. You have been listening to the Inkwell, sister show to the Speakeasy Cafe Open Mic Poetry Show, and um, I'm really grateful for you all being here. I hope you found something, and... Um, are going to be able to take it out and get some writing done. And if you do write something to this, make sure that you save it and you can listen or you can bring it to the next show because we'll have a time where you can call in and read. We're going to close the show with the same track that we opened with and we will see you all next time. Thank you. Good night, Cassandra. Thank you. The high fashion hotline. Help! My family's hosting an epic Memorial Day barbecue, and we need to look as legendary as our spread to kick off the summer, right? Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, starting tomorrow, splash into summer with an incredible 50% off all tees, all tanks, all shorts, all dresses, and all
3: swimwear at Old Navy and Old Wow, 50% off all those styles? Now that's epic.
1: So is this? Tees started just six bucks, but hurry, it ends Monday. 50% off and tees from six bucks? Old Navy, here we come. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 525 to 528. Excludes clearance, active, licensed flag products, and men's packaged.
0: Get to Old Navy. One day only. Tomorrow, get dresses for just eight bucks. Plus snag Old Navy's famous fleece, just twelve bucks for adults, ten bucks for kids and toddler. Tomorrow at Old Navy and Old Valid five twenty five select styles.